I would like to invite you on a voyage, a crusade, or a quest, whatever you'd like to call it. But a journey nonetheless that began for me many years ago when I hit my own personal metaphorical iceberg. As we all navigate through these uncharted, turbulent waters, this perfect storm entrenched in such polarized shards of dark and light, I hope to use this vessel to unearth and share a few of the beings from around the globe that can hopefully offer some respite during this ambiguous time. I call these individuals the torchbearers, the stewards, or the bridge builders. And in this era of false heroism, dare I even call them the true influencers. We ask the question, who do we recruit aboard this proverbial ark? The ship that will be navigating perilously through this new and unfamiliar territory with a view to reshape and regenerate our relationship with the animal kingdom, one another, and the planet Earth. The only home we know. These are the stewards, the thinkers, and the doers. Accompany me, Rona Mitra, as we voyage onward toward the shores of our undeciphered future. On the last arc. Hello and welcome to episode two of The Last Arc with me, Rona Mitra. I would just like to say thank you very much to everyone who joined myself and James Mwenda last week in Kenya with his two wonderful girls, the last two great northern white rhino. And for those who haven't heard the episode, it's obviously still up. Um, and in that same vein, and while we're in this arena and is it's a subject matter that I care greatly about and I feel that a lot of people are talking about but can get buried under, under the mire of all the other news and I mean it's just almost too much really to keep up on but um, unturfing and keeping the light on this baseline issue which really is so very important and I think it's really necessary that we don't let this conversation about our relationship with animals and zoonotic diseases and how it is and why it is this keeps coming up and how it is and why it is we seem to keep ignoring it. And so far be it from me to be uh, the voice of knowledge on any of this, but it's it's fairly blatant to me that um, this relationship we have not just with endangered species and exotic animals but whether it be the food that we consume on a daily or how other cultures consume the food they do I think that the way we look at what it is we're consuming and how it is and at what rate and to what consequence is really a prevalent conversation at the moment so I have managed to find an incredible um, found him I've been in contact, I've been following his work, and I'm a fan, um, but I did find him all the way over in Australia, <laughs> which meant that we had a bit of a, it was a bit of a trial getting on the phone, but we managed it. Paul Hilton, he was originally, well, he was based in Hong Kong for a very long time, and he's he's just transitioned back to Australia. He's a photojournalist and wild wildlife trade consultant who focuses on global environmental and conservation issues. And he endeavors to bring about urgent change in the way we treat our surroundings. He's received numerous awards for his conservation efforts, including Wildlife Photographer of the Year, the World Press Photo Awards, Asian Geographic Best of Decade series, and many, many, many more. 
And right now he's working on the palm oil issue and documenting deforestation, land clearing and the wildlife trade in Sumatra. And it was really nice chatting with him after we'd both had our Vegemite and Marmite on toast and a cup of tea. So I hope you enjoy the chat and um, I'll be posting links to his work and all pertinent information in and around Paul Hilton and his endeavours. Enjoy. I can't hear you. There you go. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. Good morning. Mm. Cheers. Good morning. Cheers, Cheers to you. Cheers, Cheers to, your, to your persistence. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, this is a, bit, a wee bit like herding kittens. I apologise, but we made it work, didn't we? You keep going, sounding like a Dalek. Hold on. You see, only only certain people know what Daleks are. Well, you would. You're English. I know. We know what exterminates. We need some Daleks right about now. What do you think? I think we need some (laughs) really... (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'd like send them out. I can't think where exactly I'd point them first, but, you know, I think think you could take a guess. But... um, yeah. I've always sort of, I already, um, it, before I, uh, we connected, I sort of did a bit of a little waxing lyrical on you and your background. I mean, you are, you know, a very prestigious international photographer. Oh, thank you. Well, you That's are. Right. You're a member of the prestigious International League of Conservation Photographers, which is quite fancy, isn't it? Awarded Wildlife Photographer of the Year 2012, 2014, and 2016. No small feat. And um, throughout, I mean, I mean you, you've obviously worked and documented many different causes from the bear bar farming, palm oil issue, pangolin trade, manta ray, shark fin trade, and also your contribution to the wonderful documentary in 2015, which was Racing Extinction. And also amplified for me the necessity of and, and the power of visual uh, messaging, actually, um, and how people, I think, in this current day, just bringing back the importance of the work, the kind of work you do, which, if you don't mind me saying, um, not to sort of blow hot air necessarily, but the reason why I um, appreciate the, the work you do is because I see and, uh, and I'm aware of the lack of vanity behind it. Um, you're sort of, you're in their uh, boots on the ground and it's about telling the story. And I don't know whether or not you consider yourself a, a conservation photographer or activist or photojournalist. And actually I'm interested to hear from you how you define that and where you put yourself in, in that world and what that means and how you even arrived here and um, where the motivation came from and where it still lies, in fact. Um, oh, it's a good question. <laughs> I, I ask myself that every day. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I wear many hats. Like as you mentioned, I'm a, I, some, I'm a conservation photojournalist. I'm an activist, um, investigator. It just it depends what needs to be done. Um, mm-hmm. If there's a situation um, where I, years ago, I documented the manta ray trade while I was following the shark fin trade and I came across all these mantas lined up in sort of in fishing markets and that's sort of how I got involved in uh, racing extinction anyway along the shark fin trade um, yeah manta rays were lined up and I realized 
they were cutting up the manta rays, but they're taking the gills. Mm. And so I ended up following the gills from Sri Lanka across into Hong Kong and then China and then also in Indonesia. And then I got to Guangzhou in southern China and I just there was these bags and bags and bags of manta ray gills. And every time I tried to Google manta ray gills, manta ray plates, everything was data deficient. There was absolutely nothing on this trade. So I had to put my scientist hat on. I started, you know, working with scientists and we did the first ever DNA analysis of, of gills in the markets was mobular rays, manta rays, even whale sharks within the, this skill raker trade. Um, so it's just whatever needs to be done on any given issue, that there's a gap. And obviously there's a lot of great people doing a lot of great work. But if I turn up into a situation and see that, okay, I can bring some some powerful visuals, but also this needs to be done or this needs to be done or if I push this a little bit, someone else will jump on board and get get it moving. So just whatever needs to be done, um, how I sort of where I can see I could bring some value or create some momentum to get something moving. And with the, the manta rays, it was a perfect example of there wasn't much really going on with legislation and, and everything, like I said, was data deficient and that just really helped put the issue um, through CITES in 2013, really having that information, having that data really helped push for their list, the, the listing of the manta rays and then protection through different range states. So, yeah, just whatever needs to be done and when and, and how. And, yeah. Yeah, which, which you were successful in, uh, in, in passing that through CITES. Yeah, there was a, there a lot of great people working on that obviously i just felt that particular work on the, the dna really helped because that gave people the tools to identify the difference between a mobular ray and a manta ray and an alfredi and a birocious different type there's two kinds of mantas but also they're the um close cousins the mobular ray so you could actually tell the difference from a, a dried product where before that people would look at it and it just they wouldn't even know what it was from the gills, you mean? From yeah, the, you just yeah. wouldn't have a clue by looking at the untrained eye. You'd look at that and you'd think it was some kind of sea sponge or something. So you have two kinds of mantas. You have the Alfredis, the reef mantas, which are very resident, and then the oceanic, which move throughout the world's oceans. Um, a lot of those local populations are extinct now, sadly. There's a lot of these house reefs. There's, there should be mantas. They've gone. But um, we've given them a bit of time, um, but they're still being whacked in a lot of these these fishing areas and uh i know once again particularly in indonesia during covid we've heard there's a spike in manta ray fisheries going on right now mary o'malley put out this great report and, and obviously i threw you know contributed to that report but it was um valued each manta ray was worth a million dollars throughout its lifespan to the to the indonesian economy um, by keeping it alive or a one-off two or three hundred US for a fisherman to spear it or a million dollars throughout its lifetime generating towards tourism. So it's just, and this this is, this, sadly, most species can do this. Like orangutans in Indonesia, no one's ever put a price on them. But the, the, the income that these species generate is just getting infrastructure in place and, and getting these, these situations, getting it set up so tourism can actually access these areas. Um, but sadly, a lot of stuff is, is becoming extinct before we can even get these, you know, get the, the foundations in place. Like in, Indonesia and the Losa ecosystem where I've been working um, 
the whole palm oil issue, it's the same thing up there. This forest is absolutely stunning, but there's no real access for tourism to access these areas. And it's just we're sort of caught in between, you know, the sort of palm oil expansion and tourism slowly starting to, to wake up to the fact that there's a lot of ecosystem, the last place on earth where tigers, rhinos, elephants, and orangutans. Um, but it's where that, you know, where we actually can sort of come to some middle ground and, and stop the household destruction of this this place. Um, yeah, so it's a complicated time. I've started um, um, tours called Out There with Paul Hilton where I take small groups of people into this area, and I did the first one uh, last year, very successful, with a few hiccups being the first uh, trip into the into this location. But sadly, COVID, it doesn't look, think, look like it's going to happen this year, and it's really just getting people into this area and having access where they normally wouldn't go to. We ended up spending a few days looking for last, you know, wild elephants, but we didn't find them. But we, we literally followed fresh tiger footprints for a couple of hours, and we were so close. Um, we didn't get to see the tiger, but it was a pretty special moment for everyone, just mm -hmm. following this, you know, Sumatran tiger footprints, and you could see literally how it jumped across the river, and we were right on its tail, and it was pretty special just following the footprints. Everyone, everyone left that trip with amazing experience, and it would be just good to... If the Indonesian government could realise the value of this place, you know, I'm all for you know development, but it has to be sustainable. And at the moment, it's just bulldozing down everything. Um, yeah, for palm oil, which is but there's really twofold. Bad. There's twofold to that conversation, aren't there? I mean, that really, that I think that people are so unaware of, and this is that this is. I mean, this is the bigger conversation, which is the demand for it. So, yeah. if we're talking about getting governments behind you know, the awareness and the conservation conversation, they're not really going to adhere to it if the demand is still there. That's the bottom line. So I think there's a very small bracket of people that actually understand the implications and ramifications and also the hiding places of palm oil, really, you know, where it, where it finds itself in our daily lives and our part in our consumption of it. So, you know, um, I mean, is, there, is it even worth actually having, hammering the conversation about consumption and cutting down consumption? Um, or is it, is, it so, is it so entrenched in big industry that actually the average household or whatever it is, if, if, if we were to sort of, uh, you know, to, 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 to mindfully watch where it is and how it gets into our worlds, would that even make a difference? Would it make a dent? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I th I think right now, yeah. Obviously, palm oils want fifty percent of of products in, on your supermarket shelves. It's literally everywhere, and the world actually can't do without it. Um, it's it's such a great crop. It's just the way it's the way we actually go in and knock it, bulldoze everything down, and it's just this monoculture. Um, and I think I think there is room for it. It just I think. People need to really push for, I don't know if there's such a thing as sustainable palm oil. Um, and so, so people could do, you know, boycott it as much as possible and, and really push industry to change. And I think it is possible. It's a, it's, a, it's a long, hard road because you've got it going into biofuels, India, China, even Russia, their, big, their demand is growing for palm oil. And... Indonesia and Malaysia are the biggest producers of palm oil, but it's actually starting to go through Central Africa, through South America. So all our equatorial forests are at risk of being felled for palm oil. Um, 
and that's that's one of the real scary things for me. That um, uh, recently I was in Papua, in Papua, Indonesian side of Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. and this huge illegal palm oil plantation there. It's going to be the biggest in the world if it goes through, and they're just clearing all this pristine forest mm-hmm. uh, without the proper licenses, but out of sight of the rest of the world. It's literally in the middle of the Papua New Guinea rainforest um, on the border of PNG and Indonesian Papua. And just no one even know about this place. Um, so it's it's the whole industry needs to to be sort of yeah cleaned up, reformed. Uh, legislation needs to be pushed through. But how do we get to that point? I'm not sure. It's so complex. It's so difficult. Um, yeah, but yeah. it it is. You think that I mean, we're not not even necessarily just talking about the palm oil conversation. But you talk about you know, Brazil, we talk about Australia, talk about the, the, I mean, the fires in Brazil that which took place, direct correlation due to this, um, this, this basically food that's grown for cattle, cattle farming, I mean, and the absolute kind of what the governmental kind of free for all and sanctioning it really, it's a, it has the, you know, it's, 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 it's a green, it's green lit. It's, you know, it's not, there aren't any restrictions. There aren't any, there's nothing that's implemented. In, you know, we're talking about, you know, cattle. This is something that we actually have a daily relationship with and people still actually not really getting the correlation or actually doing anything about it or demanding anything be done about it. So what is it, you know, if you have different governments, you have different leaders like Bolsonaro, whoever, and case by case, who actually, if they're not benefiting from it uh, economically, then what, what incentive do they have? So what's the alternative? Like, what is the alternative? I mean, I think I think that's the thing is that if you're talking about sustainable palm oil or what I'm actually interested in, because I don't believe in this, um, you know, I yes, ideally, would it be great if everybody went plant-based? Would it be great if everybody actually, you know, with a fine-tooth comb went through their cupboards and said, okay, palm oil, okay, okay, we don't need this. Do need I mean, God, if everyone did that, that would be wonderful, obviously. But eradicating it is a complete impossibility. And for, so people who stand there sort of like, you know, be, you know, sounding their horns and beating their drums about it all has to go. It's just not a, it's not a real. It's, it's not practical. It's not possible. It's not practical. You could actually in, implement no deforestation policies. There is a lot of land. So like, I, like I said, I don't. Palm, we can't do it without palm oil. It's, it's here to say, but there is a lot of alternate land that could be used. Um, it's just redistribution. Whether it's cattle, is it going to be palm oil? You know what? What is the demand? And but the but the deforestation that's still going on in twenty twenty um, globally is is really scary. Scary. We've got runaway climate change. It's still going on. even here in Australia. They've got as much deforestation as Indonesia and Brazil and the Amazon. And for me to realise that, being a first world country, um, it's shocking. It's wow. it's really scary. Yeah, you almost expect and it going into third world. Country. I mean, you expect it going well, into. Well, yeah, because it's they've still got issues. They're still trying to put bowls of rice on people's table. Exactly. People just moving out of poverty. Whereas yeah. here in Australia, yeah. there is poverty, but nothing like I've seen or we've all experienced in third world countries. Um, and and for yeah the, the trees that are being felled here it's it's absolutely appalling and there's a lot of corruption here and I, I've been away 20 years and to come back and see this country and see the deforestation it just it's appalling Australia had so much going for it and they've just decided to you know yeah just just follow suit with so many other countries and just exploit 
the environment and, and ultimately it's going to cost us twice more than twice as much it's going to be so much more in trying to fix these issues later on down the lines so, so the insanity just drives me mad yeah were you quite surprised about that? I mean, having come from Hong Kong and spending so much time in Indonesia. Well, I, lived, I was in Indonesia for seven years and I've been following the palm oil issue there and the deforestation there. And then, yeah, you come back to Australia thinking, you know, they've obviously got the forestry ma- management in place. And, and I was, I'm just shocked. There's, a state, there's more, yeah, like I'm in Queensland now and there's more, um, trees being felled here than any other state and it just just up the road here they're just relocating the Bruce Highway instead of working on the existing road they're just going through this um, huge area of um, pristine koala habitat and it's like really it's just because obviously it's cheaper to move the, the re like work on the existing highway going through another pristine koala habitat and it's but just, after just what happened but after just what happened all, After all the fires, all the fires, all those images of koalas being rescued, and that's that. But see, that's the sort of like the, the the dichotomy of it, as you know, human human beings taking sort of such sort of pride in their heroism, going out and oh my gosh, here's me in my my in my YouTube video of rescuing a koala, and then the next day it's like yeah, you know, we'll all let that you know burn down that bit, cut down that bit, and it's like hang on a second, the conversation's happening side by side either not being met or it's just not convenient or is it apathy? Is it laziness? I mean, what, what, what is the common denominator? It's convenient. It's easier just to, yeah, work with the status quo. Like even the whole model of suburbia here, like suburbia is not sustainable in this country whatsoever. The, the way we just mow down, you know, woodland, the suburbia. But there could be, if they stepped back and really looked at suburbia and, and had wildlife corridors through every suburb with linking to major other forest areas it could work but it would take so much more planning so much more you know cooperation between business and government but it could actually we could create a win-win but it's too difficult is it it's well obviously it is because everything is it too difficult because i don't this is this is sort of my the, the holy grail of my of my of my kind of my mental psychological spiritual emotional questions request is what is the common denominator in the human psyche that has either been bred out of us or bred into us through conditioning or desensitization because obviously look there's there's people that you and I will automatically connect with on a on a very specific level of what I which, which is which is hundred percent empathy assess and, and it, 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 it really is it's empathy and understanding that our connection to all species our environment ecosystems is not only is it essential intellectually but on a feeling level like this is our home these are our brothers and sisters we need each other we need to figure out a symbiotic way of actually adhering to the fact that nature has a perfect design and if we listen to it, we have a chance of getting it right. But we've, we sh- we've got earmuffs on. We either have become culturally desensitized or we have become conveniently apathetic. Because when we talk about first world countries, you talk about Australia, um, talk about America, talk about England. I mean, I mean listen, as far as I'm concerned, everyone's got blood on their hands. And, I'm, and, 
and myself included, like, and it's very important to, to, to really look at yourself as an individual, to look at your brothers and sisters, your own community and go, okay, where, where, where am I, where, where can I do better? Where am I culpable here? Where am I accountable here? Because if we don't start doing that, then all that's happening is you're passing the, back, the buck back to the people who need to make the bucks or want to make the bucks. And so I, I, I'm just looking at what that common denominator is, and especially with, you, you, you know, um, which blows my mind when I look at pangolins, for example, these, which I actually realize not a lot of people even know what they are, but the most trafficked mammal and the only scaled mammal on the planet, these gorgeous little dragon-like sculptures um, who automatically you wouldn't look at and say, that's a good meal or that, you know, whatever the, the, the sort of the, the myths that are born out of the scales have, whatever, you know, medicinal qualities or whatever it is. But I think, I think myself, who, what mindset is that? Rather than damning it completely, I try to understand, I try to understand how do you get into that place where empathy exists? And then, and then I realize that actually, some people are actually either born without it or it's, it's actually, it was never given the chance to evolve. So can you actually even connect to and relate to people who have a sociopathic mindset? Because that's actually what we're talking about. I mean, to be fairly blunt, you remove empathy from the equation. You can have intellectual compassion. There are people who I know and who you know who are, who are in the conservation world who actually have intellectual compassion, so they're out there doing stuff and they're eating a bloody great steak or whatever it is, the complete disconnect. And so I don't know, it's just this, this government society and sort of bigger, what is, it, what is it that actually is the root cause of this disconnect to the perpetuate, pe perpetual cycle of not only suffering, but um, the demise? I mean, there's twofold to this, which is the absolute suffering, Suffer, you know, the torture and the pain that we inflict upon um, our, 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 our brothers and sisters. They are our brothers and sisters. I don't care if I sound like oh, yeah. No. no, I'm totally with you. On a daily basis, the suffering that goes on on this planet is horrendous. And I, it's got to have some play out some bigger picture. The, the, the amount of animals are slaughtered every day for you know, our consumption. It's something like, what, 80 billion a year annually? It's it's huge amount. It's ridiculous. But all that that energy has to has to yeah work its way through in other areas. And it's I, I totally agree. It's but people don't go there. They haven't. Most of the people most of the people are living sort of living in a bubble. They don't even spend any energy. And you can understand once again going back to poverty when you just want to put food on the table and a chicken comes in or a pig or. They, they don't and will not give any energy to that. They just want to feed their family. That's as far as it goes. But when we've been privileged lives, we've been born in the West, we've, we've had education, we've got food on the table, you know, uh, roof over our head, and we've, we can have these conversations and only then um, people can stop and really look at and think about the big picture. So, and what, 10% of the planet? I don't know, maybe less. 15%, we're 15%. Most people are literally trying to survive day to day. That, that is um, part of the problem. If we're going to bring it back to this particular time that we're living in right now, sitting on the naughty step, 
right, with the time out to think about it. I'm, I'm, I'm quite amazed when I walk around. I mean, I've only been there about three times to a supermarket in the last ooh, nine weeks. And I'm intrigued to see how people are consuming. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see how people are responding and what they're filling up their baskets with, because these are people who actually have the choice, no better, there's no excuse. And, you know, with these, these contraptions, these boxes, these, even through social media, even if you bloody just have an Instagram account, there's absolutely no way that you're not going to get the memo on your part in the equation. Um, where, whether, you know, whether you know what a pangolin is or not, or whether or not you've made any correlation between all the zoonotic diseases for the last, you know, couple of few decades or whatever. Okay, put that aside. Our relationship with the food that we eat and um, what we're consuming, I mean, really with people who absolutely are not talking, you're not talking hand to mouth. You're not talking about breadline. You're talking about people who are making mindful, mindless choices to consume unsustainably through gluttony and convenience and apathy. And so that's the thing, that, to, be, to be honest with you, that's the thing that actually really troubles me most. So there's all these issues, there's so much. And, um, yeah, I think that the Chinese uh, with the traditional Chinese medicine is a huge factor as well. And, once again, another industry that needs to be reformed. WHO endorsed traditional Chinese medicine last year, but there's so many endangered species being you know, pushed through that industry and use those products being used within tcm it's crazy so bringing bringing this to the conversation if you're if you're comfortable because obviously this is this is what's been sort of kicked around with the wet markets and um this little you know virus that's been buzzing around um the connection to pangolin the connection to bats the connection what, what where do you where do you stand on that? The COVID nineteen it's it's been linked to the horse um, horseshoe bat, and they're found in sort of caves in Yunnan province, mm-hmm. on the far western side of China that borders Burma and Laos, and um, but there's this big gap. They linked it to pangolins, pangolins could possibly be sold in the wet markets. Um, I know for a fact no bats are consumed in these markets in Wuhan. All the bat imagery you've seen, bats in cages, bats in markets, that's coming from Indonesia, from Sulawesi and different parts of Indonesia. Um, I've personally never seen bats on sale in, in, in China, and I've been to a lot of wet markets. Um, so the, there's the big gap and how, you know, the whole world is pushing for an inquiry into China and how this has happened, there's a big grey area and I don't know. But the Wuhan, you know, viral institute that's there, literally a block away from the wet market, um, yeah, I st- something's possibly gone down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that I, I covered um, SARS in 2002-2003 and they had a direct 99% link with um, the coronavirus that was in um, civet cats and they pretty much pinned that down very quickly and they traced it back to the wet markets of Guangzhou and they had huge markets, huge amounts of civet cats were being consumed and now we're months into this and still nothing. We know it's from bats, 
There was a pangolin that do carry a, a similar coronavirus, but it's only a 91% match. It's still a huge area. And so there's this big gap. So I'm still, um, yeah, watching and waiting, listening, but something's not right on well, how actually we got to this point. There's a there's this huge part of the jigsaw that's missing. Do you find it... Um Odd though, given that it's um, obviously it's it, it, it's grey in as far as being able to trace it back to exactly what, but in between zoonotic diseases and animals, our consumption of them and where and how, um, which is pretty evident that these wet markets that they've opened up again so rapidly um, is an oversight. Yeah, it's. I always say, though, you know, my saying is no virus or, you know, pandemic have have actually come from eating broccoli. It's it's the mistreatment of animals all the way along, how we just interact with the natural world. And and you look throughout history, it's just time and time again the mistreatment of animals. Going, you know, to the wet markets, people need fresh food. You know, people are going to always need fresh fish. We can sit here and say, yeah, become vegans, but let's face it, let's be realistic. A lot of people are not going to do that. And they need access to fresh food. And a lot of them don't have these sort of, you know, freezer space or they day to day. Um, so these wet markets are going to continue. And there's a lot of the thing is within China, there's a lot of farming of these wild animals. Yeah. There's huge farms of raccoon dogs and different species and, and different kinds of freshwater turtles. Um, it's just how that's regulated and how it's managed. Um, and if you think about it, the, all these markets across the world have been going on year after year. In Indonesia, the amount of bats that have been consumed down there, and none of these viruses have actually jumped to humans before. I just find it, it I don't know how we've got away with it for so long. Um, so... How, how do, there's no way these markets are going to be shut down permanently. It's just what species are being traded through these markets and how they're being managed within those markets and how they're being housed and, and hygiene levels needs to be looked at. A lot of the wet markets in, in Hong Kong have actually they've taken them off the streets and moved them into sort of market areas where everything's a lot more hygienic and cleaner. Um, and I think... I think that needs to happen within China um, because the wet markets are not going to go away mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you really think about it. This, the, the population is too many people. Wuhan, 11 million people just in that one city. But we get back to, the, we get back to this conversation, which seems to be at least um, a phrase that is being battered around, which is what's essential, need versus want, quantity of consumption, alternatives. So, and implementing infrastructures that are sanitary, hygienic, and obviously within sort of, you know, limits of how much. And the problem is, is that a lot of these endangered species, the price point on them, right? And so the more endangered they become, the price point goes up. And those are... Those a, lot of, a lot of these endangered species are not being consumed or sold in these wet markets. Right. They're, they're, they're sold at right. wild animal markets. Specifically, yeah. yeah, you have to be in the know, and yeah. these restaurants will have a menu that most is not open to the public, you'll go in and you'll get a special wildlife menu, pangolins, civet cats, porcupines, snakes, 
and whatever other species. Um, and, and the thing is, there is probably always going to be a demand for that because it, it, Chinese have been consuming these animals for thousands of years and now it's just the population's such a point where it's pushing these species you know, towards extinction a lot quicker than ever before. Um, and going back to the, the wet markets, for sure, I think we need to be reviewing on, on what species, what animals being sold, what seafood's being sold, what meat's being sold. Um, but and China's invested so much in these wild animal farms. It's, it's a long way in to actually how do they how do they reform this with the political will to close a lot of these farms down, close these markets down? It's There's so many different levels. It has to come from Beijing to the provincial levels and then down to the local, you know, towns and villages. And, and how do they manage all that? And obviously being, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, they can, they can bring in legislation very quickly and change things, which one thing I do love about China. If things need to happen, you saw the the way they built hospitals within two weeks in Wuhan. Mm. They literally said, right, mm. and I've never seen anything like it. Mm. Imagine trying to do that in the West. It just wouldn't mm. happen. Mm. It would take them five years to get their things out. Mm. Um, but so if the political will was there from Beijing, things could happen quite quickly, but it's, but it's fundamentally they've been trying to push tiger farming to the international community off and on for years now. And tiger farming is actually going on in China. Huge demand for tiger wine, for, for tiger parts, and it's been ongoing. I, I know now in Guangxi province, there's a huge tiger farm, um, and that's still going on. It's just not being pushed internationally, but it's it's happening. They're, they are in a position of, of you know power on the planet, and where you know the US used to. Um, <laughs> hold all those those keys now china's actually um yeah in a position to really dominate this planet it's yeah. nothing to do again with the chinese themselves it's 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 just to do with consumption and their eating habits and it's a lot of this just the southern provinces by the way a lot of the northern um provinces don't eat like i've said it before everything every everything in the sky, everything on the land, everything in the ocean. The southern province, especially the Cantonese the Guang, in Guangdong province, they eat a lot of these species. But China has proved that they get it. Look at the panda bear. Mm -hmm. Look at the panda bear. Look how they respect it and they love the panda bear. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful animal. Mm -hmm. So why can that not follow through with other species? Yeah, there's ivory in the US. There's a demand for ivory globally. But the biggest demand comes from China. Rhino horn, Vietnam and China. Bears for their bear bile. Okay, there's a, a bear bile in Vietnam, Laos, Korea, um, Burma. I said that, um, and obviously China. So, but it's, yeah, do they want to really be remembered for pushing these great species to extinction? I'm sure they don't. I just so, I just don't know why there's not more being done. Because there's no connection to the bigger picture. People are living in isolation with a me-self mindset. And that's the disease. Yeah. I, think, I think that's the, yeah, the, the biggest single point. It's all about me, myself, and I, which is that's sort of the world we've created. And that's why people, yeah, 
the attitude I've heard a lot is, well, if we don't, if we don't sort of take that fishery, someone else is going there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a resource to be exploited and that's all it is. Absolutely. The here and the now, exploit it. Absolutely. Extract those resources and move on. And we are in the, in the age of resources, but there, all, there is coming a point where those resources are not there anymore. And then what happens then? But where we are fundamentally the only, I mean, this generation, I mean, this, it, 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 it sort of falls on us. But I think it's really important, you know, for myself included, I don't know about you, but it, there's a real moment for, you know, what is my part in this and what's my footprint? What's my connection to, you know, the damage that's being done on a much bigger scale? Um, I'm fascinated when I, you know, did a three-day actually ended up being... Um, you know, based on the principles of permaculture, which are a symbiotic infrastructure where, you know, and you know, probably know what it is. It's not just a type of farming. It's about how our actions affect the whole plant animal community. Everything has a knock on effect. And when you start thinking that way, you start thinking outside of yourself. And so implementing that mindset and integrating the possibility of that mindset, you know, depending on who you're dealing with, first of all, takes an understanding of where, that, where that, that person's mindset or those people's mindset are at to begin with. And you, you're working against God sometimes, deities who have for centuries or millennia been interwoven into a belief system, which is, a, is part of a genetic DNA coding. You're going to go up against God and belief systems with, a, with, a, 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 you know, with new systems, a possible integration of like really talking about how you can actually really be here to respect God's work, if you like. Every single culture has to have a conversation. Every single community, every single individual about what's my part in this? What do I need versus what I want? And then it does come down to, I think, being able to open up and say, I see you. I hear you. Let's try and integrate something here. There's no other way. Because there is no, it cannot be, but it cannot be black and white. There is no black and white. It's grey across the board. And I think there's something really wonderful about fallibility. Like literally, oh, we fucked it. Yay. Okay. God, can we just admit that? It's okay. Do you know what? It's in our own, some to lesser or greater degrees. And if everybody goes, okay, how do we, pardon my French, but I'm going to say it. How do we unfuck it? Okay. Who's got some ideas? If we can actually stand here and go, okay, nobody's going to persecute me for actually admitting the fact that I do not want to be part of perpetuating any kind of suffering. I mean, really, if we can align with, do you want to be part of continuing and perpetuating a cycle of suffering? Or would you like to not? Which party would you like to stand on? And so the, the, yeah, the single, single biggest thing we can do, really, is, is your diet. Look at the consumption, and that is the most powerful thing everybody can do on a day-to-day basis, Yeah. right? Even if they don't care about, you know, the orangutans in a forest or the elephants on the African savannah, just, you know, if you want to sustain all life, look at the way we consume. If, if people actually got off meat and dairy, be huge saving on the carbon footprint and yeah, we have. Yeah, we have the, the, those links as well. Not just for yourself, your health, the cruelty aspect, and climate runaway climate change. It's like a win-win-win. It's like yes, it, this should be this should be like global law. Everybody needs to like just step it up, right? If we're actually going to get out of this ship that's sinking, yeah, that would be a really good start. Yeah, if people could just 
do yeah. that much. Well, I think it's also, but that's it has to be an inclusive conversation, which is, by the way, if you want to have your barbecue, your braai, whatever you call it, and whatever, asado, whatever part of the world, and that's part of your communal way of, you know, sharing with your, your brothers and sisters, you can have it, just not every day. You know, it's not it's not that much to ask for. But I do think that what happens is is that this 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 the reality of anything moving forward, while everybody's standing on their rocks, pointing fingers, um, um, all it does is sort of uh, deeper, sort of inset the the graining of indignance. Um, okay, I have a question for you because um, I'm really curious about this. I find this really I I, I find what it is that you do first of all um, an incredibly difficult job. Um, emotionally for me, how you are able to document and go into, and I urge um, anybody, and uh, I'm, I'm going to post up links and stuff to documents and, and documentaries and, and some of your work, but um, how are you able to sleep? How do you go in and not just fall apart or do you fall apart? Um, emotionally, is there... A, 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 a kind of a shield that you have to put around yourself when you go into these environments or are you so just I, I'm t- I don't want to put words into your mouth are you just are you just very driven to tell the story for these innocents um, I'm just very curious as to how this works for you I've been documenting um, some really quite um, depressing and 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 really hard-hitting, really confrontating sort of situations where species are being harmed, uh, forests are being felled, um, and I've been doing it for a long time. And and for many years I, I was fine. But then one day, actually it was just before Racing Extinction, I did hit a wall. I'd come back. I don't know if you saw the picture of the pangolin pit. It was um, 5,000 frozen pangolins that were found in a – uh, shipping container being sent to Vietnam. And so I got up early one morning after this bust and they were going to burn all these frozen pangolins and they poured them into this huge ditch. And I remember getting there before sunrise and there was no one else around. There was a few um, Indonesian police and not no one else. There was no press or anything. And I walked up to the pit and took some photographs and it was it was such... To me, it was a moment where, yeah, it really sort of, it really affected me. I thought, what an absolute waste. And I'd seen, I've seen so many different species being whacked, elephants. And, um, but this, just the, the sheer numbers and the, uh, the, the absolute waste. And so I, I left and didn't think, anything. but then I had a bit of a, you know, I had a moment, a bit of a breakdown as in uh, got really upset about it and I realised, I can continue doing this work, but I need to, I need to change, put, bring some tools in place to continue. You know what I mean? Um, and and so then I just had to do a lot of you know my own personal work, um, and that involved um, a lot of meditation, yoga, um, different. Um, I sort of dealt in with uh, some plant based medicines for a while, off and on. Um, Expand. Ayahuasca? Um, a peyote, been sit, sitting with peyote a few times, mm-hmm. and that really helped. Ayahuasca's mm-hmm. never really had the opportunity. I don't know if I, I will, but mm-hmm. let's see. But that really helped. And just getting myself into a space where I wasn't so um, emotionally connected to my work. Like 
continuing doing what I do, but having a bit of breathing space between it. Yeah. So continuing, but not without that emotional connection or, you know, I had to detach in a way. Yeah. But so I've managed to get myself in a really good place to continue to do it, but it's still hard, you know, and just last week I went and they were clearing some trees here and just hearing the, the, the crunching of those the trunks coming down and the, the audio is sometimes harder than the actual image. Mm-hmm. Um, just another sense that I pick up on and um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a tough a tough job, but I don't know. I feel like someone's got to do it. It's really important, and I believe strongly that, that someone needs to do it, and I'm good at it. And if I could walk away, that I think um, then there's less people who are going to be documenting these issues and, and bringing them to the highlighting and bringing them to the world. So I feel like I just, yeah, it's what I do, and I, I should keep going. But it's, it is hard, and it has, it has had some tough moments, but... But I, I've learned to work through that. And I know a lot of conservationists do go through it and hit these walls and have these times, and some of them just burn out and they just sort of become bitter and twisted. Um, yeah. But right. not me. I still, I, I still wake up and, you know, enjoy a butterfly in the garden. I, I love the ocean. I'm always surfing. That's really important to get out it, just in nature. And then also I created this out there with Paul Hilton where I take people on these trips to get in – up close and personal with nature and um, swimming with, you know, taking people to experience the first time with blue whales is, is uh, to me, that's just, it's, it's for me to have put myself in a position to be able to do that is like a reward from all the other work I've done. So it's a balance of getting that balance right. And uh, yeah. Does that still explain it? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it, it actually explains an awful lot. Um, thank you for, um, I'm opening my eyes to that because it actually it instills something that I believe is really um, important because I, I when when we first spoke and when I really started looking at your work and I uh, just got a resonance. I have I've been around a lot of um, conservationists and actually just people who are on the front line. Um, people who are in service and, you know, some of my greatest heroes are also wartime photographers. I'm fascinated by some of the greats and most of them die on the front line. Um, but it's, uh, what I've noticed is there's this, 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 a realization where there's a precipice one reaches. And I do think this in, in this, 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 this line of service that you're in. And, um, because I think that there are these vocations, uh, that we, well people like you find yourself in and I'm um, inspired by it and I'm grateful for it so thank you because you are out there um, and I know it's putting your life on the line but I also know that on a soul level if you don't check in and what you've said which I really do believe is this connection to um, plant medicine and plant intelligence there is a surrendering of um, a certain amount of ourselves and I guess that's your I mean, and when I use the word ego, I mean a false sense of ourselves that I think drives us and can drive us for a certain amount of our lives. And then yeah. that fuel system needs a change. It's like a... That's a gear change for sure. It's an oil, it's yeah. an oil change. It's like we've, yeah. we've, that's got us this far. And there's a, this is, there's a moment, like you said, and it sounds like that's where you... And you had to hand it over to something bigger than yourself to say... 
if I'm going to continue with this, I need your, I need, I need to change up the fuel to get me through this. I would imagine that your feel, you feel that there's an intrinsic support system there for you, saying this is, this is your path, right? Or totally. Maybe, yeah. Or it maybe, was, maybe it, it would have like, been like that's you, and you're out, and you could have no, got no, a deciding moment. Definitely some big moments, and the way way it did come into my life was very strange. Um, yeah. So it, it no, it was a perfect time, and it needed. I needed some, um, yeah, some clarification, I suppose. And at the same time, I really got into my free diving as well, which, which also helped my meditation. And, yeah, so there's a lot of things came into one junction, one point in time. And, uh, yeah, it was like a rebirth almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was it, it, a very powerful time, yeah. Yeah. But I needed, definitely needed to go through something to go forward. It's nothing better than taking very powerful images. But that's, like I said, this is one part. Of, there's so many different aspects to this. Like, yeah. and this, yeah, I don't want, I can't say too much. There's some other work I'm actually doing right now. It's nothing to do with an image, but it's really important. The same, same issue. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just stuff that needs to be done that no, no one's doing. Yeah. And I feel like I can add something to it and create momentum where other people will jump on board and get involved. But also, you've stepped through the bloody looking glass, and you can't go back. It's like it's like going through the cloaks in Narnia and realizing it's on the other side. It just so happens to be that Narnia, is, in in your case, is not that pretty, although it is, and that's the dichotomy, isn't it? You're actually being confronted by so much magic and so much pain at the same time, simultaneously processing all of the awe and majesty. So you're receiving all of that, you know, the downloads from that at the same time, the absolute, yeah. you know, dichotomy. But you can't go backwards, can you, really? It's not like, you. what are you going to do, become an accountant? <laughs> no, what? it's, uh, no. There's no sort of being happy on a jet ski on a Sunday for me. No, it's just, no, it's just what it is. It's it's part of this, this yeah. But this is like, there's just still so much, um beauty and to appreciate it but uh, yeah there's no there's no switching it off you're, you're on you're on for you bought the ticket mate you're on for the ride it seems um paul i just want to say thank you so much for taking the time i know it was it was a little bit like herding kittens to get this going but i think it, i really appreciate it and you know what this is just you know for um a lot of people is um is and it's just an opportunity to I know this is this is this is not putting rose tinted glasses on absolutely anything and nor have we, but I do think it's really important for people to know that there are lots of people out there and it's not necessarily about heroes because I don't want to put people on pedestals but it's actually shining light on people who are doing really brilliant work and who are who are actually out there and um, and who are you know lending their voices and obviously I think that. You know, there's a lot of preaching to the choir, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like, as many different people that can get out there and actually at least feel some respite from the fact that, you know, good work is being done. And yes, there's some bloody big obstacles, but unless we are recognizing that people like you are out there shining the light and, and, and doing it um, in, in as effective way as possible, you know, with all the obstacles that are in place. You know, I think that we can become really anaesthetized and really petrified. And I think there are some really good humans out there, you know, believe it or not. And I think that this yeah. creates this creates this creates that little fraction of kind of like, well, look, if he's doing it, it gives me a reason to get up on my day 
and make some changes and make some different choices. And if we can do that and we can empower that and we can impact that in whatever single way possible. And in fact, you know, virally through these magic boxes, I mean, I think that's, um, that's, 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 you know, it's part of what we can do at the moment. So I really appreciate you. And I appreciate you for taking the time. <laughs> you actually want to have a chat. Um, yeah, there's so much we, we didn't cover. There's just so, there's just so much to talk about, actually. There's so many different issues. And, um, but, uh, no, I think, I think it was great. And I think, yeah. All right, love. It was really great chatting to you. Thank you, Paul. Okay, all the best. Sending Bye you hugs. All right, Bye. Bye. Thank you very much to Mr. Paul Hilton for joining us and reminding us of all the work that needs to be done. And if you felt moved or triggered positively, negatively or otherwise, and you feel compelled to dig deeper, you can follow Paul Hilton on his Instagram account and you can also follow him on outtherewithpaulhilton.com. I will be posting links to all pertinent websites, but I would definitely check out Racing Extinction, the documentary with a lot of Paul's fantastic work woven into it. And if you enjoyed this episode and you like what we're doing here, you can subscribe, which would be lovely, to The Last Arc on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can also rate and review if you felt like it. And you can follow me, I am Rona Mitra, on Instagram, or The Last Little Arc, also on Instagram, which will have updates on upcoming episodes. I hope everyone is keeping safe. I hope you're keeping clear heads and full hearts. I look forward to joining you next week.